Ion 2020 episode 218. Have 2020 Vision with Ion 2020, your source for the news and events in the lead up to the 2020 presidential election. I am Ray Eaton, and I will keep you up to date daily until November 2020 with a libertarian perspective on the candidates and their policies along with the news. Thank you for joining me. Now let's clear our vision. So over the weekend, a couple of candidates decided to drop out of the race. Hey guys, I appreciate you joining me, by the way. It's uh, Ray Eaton, host of Ion 2020. This is your libertarian look at the 2020 elections. And I just was looking over some of the news articles and things, and I came across one. It was just about Tim Ryan just decided to drop out of the Democratic race. And you're thinking to yourself, who on earth is Tim Ryan, right? You're That's what everyone's wondering. He was actually a congressman from Ohio that was running. He was on the debate stage in the first two debates when they had like the really low standards, 1%. He had to have 65,000 individual donors, 1% in these polls and all. And that was a pretty low threshold to meet. Only three candidates did not meet that threshold that were in at the time. And then Tim Ryan, once it went to 2%, and I think it was 135,000 individual donors, he wasn't even getting into these uh getting into the debates and I always say if you're not in the debates you're not even running for president essentially because if you're not in those debates you're not on the main stage you're not in the one time per month or so where people actually spend a few extra hours look or a few extra seconds looking at the election right for example like my show after these after these debates will get triple the amount of normal listeners than I normally get so to me, when I'm thinking about these debates, like these guys have got to be in the debate in order to proceed forward. And if you're not in the debate, you're not really running for president. So Tim Ryan, he decided to drop out. And that was actually a long time coming. If you did not have the traction and get into the first of these higher threshold debates, and then you also missed the second threshold, high threshold debate, you know, it, you should have probably dropped out a long time ago, but who knows how much money he was spending. I don't think he was raising a ton of money by any means. I think uh, John Delaney was the only one of these lower tier candidates that was able to raise any amount of money. I think he had, you know, $18 million on hand at the beginning of the year. He was actually the highest rate. He had the most money of any of the candidates for a while until obviously these people really started campaigning hard like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Pete Buttigieg and so forth. You know, all the front runner front runner candidates. Um, but yeah, Tim Ryan's out, whatever. You guys had no clue that he was even in in the first place. But there was one other candidate that decided to drop out as well, which is kind of making a splash because he was in the first two debates with the low thresholds. He was even in the second two debates with the little bit of higher threshold. And he may have even made it into the third or the third rounds of debates that have the higher threshold than that who knows his campaign has gone really good for a while where he was raising a ton of money where he was getting good poll numbers he kind of sunk in the polls after a while because of some bad press and some stupid things that he did stupid things that he said but then he started to take back off a little bit again but never came up to where he was originally and uh especially after he said that he was going to 
uh, confiscate your guns. That's right. Beto O'Rourke is gone. Beto O'Rourke is gone. He probably had the best press coverage of any of the lower tier candidates, too. He was somebody that seemed to be charismatic, seemed to be someone that's cool, that Democrats could get behind. You know how uh, people think, you know, they, they want someone that's cooler, and he was a punk rock musician and everything. So he kind of took off for a while. He was, you know, he was running for the Texas Senate seat back in 2018 and almost beat out Ted Cruz. So everyone thought, oh man, if this guy can campaign that hard and almost beat Ted Cruz in Texas, then maybe he would be a great presidential candidate. Turns out that he was not. Turns out that he basically uh, never really took off, never really was taken too seriously. He was kind of the guy, in my opinion, that if it sounded like a good idea, he would like change his position on the spot. Or, you know, just come up with this idea that we're going to confiscate people's guns right on the spot. I don't know if he's doing it right on the spot, but he was always trying to take, like, the hard left position on everything that he can. Trying to beat out Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, but Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders have the left covered. They have the left covered. Kamala Harris, she has that, like, just the right of Bernie and Elizabeth Warren covered, although she's not doing very well either. I'll talk about her in just a second also. So, Beto O'Rourke, yeah, he's gone, but no one's going to miss him. Those 2% of people that were going to vote for him, or 1% of people, or whoever those people are, they'll probably go over to Joe Biden, they'll probably go over to maybe Bernie Sanders, or or wherever, you know, but they're not going to go... But it's not like they're going to lose any voters, because Beto O'Rourke dropped it, like, no one was all inspired by the guy by any means. So, we'll see, but... Kamala Harris also, she did not drop out, but she's doing this all-in-in-Iowa strategy now, which I don't know if it's a good strategy or not, but I guess her campaign director says so. In the article that I was reading, this is weird, right? Listen to this. The article that I was reading, they said that they were trying to get to a top three finish in Iowa, but they were closing down the New Hampshire offices. They had four offices in New Hampshire. They're closing in all but one of them. And they're bringing people from Nevada, South Carolina, and New Hampshire's offices that are actually on staff. They're bringing them to Iowa to focus in all in Iowa for the next two months until they have their caucus. And I was thinking about that. I'm like, why would you do that? Because then once Iowa's done, it's like a week or so later that you have New Hampshire. And are you really going to become a go from a top three finish? Like, Iowa's a must win for anybody that is a lower tier candidate. It's kind of a must win for Pete Buttigieg to really give his name relevance, right? It's a must win for Kamala Harris to give her name relevance. It's a must win for anybody that's not Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. One of those two, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, has to win New Hampshire because they're right there in that state. I think that everyone's kind of seated New Hampshire to Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren is what it comes down to. So maybe Kamala Harris's strategy is this. All in in Iowa, get a top three finish there. Go to South Carolina and Nevada and try to get one of those because those are the next, after New Hampshire, those are the next 
two early states. And then at that point, try to win New Hampshire, or excuse me, try to get a top three finish in Iowa, move to South Carolina or Nevada and try to win one of those. But Joe Biden is clearly winning South Carolina. Joe Biden is doing pretty strong in Iowa. He's doing eh, not too good in New Hampshire. But I, I, I think Joe Biden does not, I, honestly, I'm starting to think that Joe Biden doesn't really have a path to the uh, the nomination. But most of the other states, though, seem like they are really in it for Joe Biden as well. I've, I mean, I've seen a lot of these polls and stuff. But we'll see. In the national polls, definitely have him still winning. So, But he's not raising money. That's the problem as well. And I think that's the same thing with Kamala Harris. She's probably not raising enough money to stay in, and that's it. Um, I, I want to get off this subject, though, of, of the of the candidates specifically, and I kind of want to talk about something that I came across from Reason.com, and it was just talking about this, this can, the candidates, and i got to find the article, actually, um, but the candidates that are running... They're putting ads on Twitter, they're putting ads on Facebook, they're putting ads on social media, right? And recently, last week, the CEO of Twitter decided that he was going to ban political ads on uh, on Twitter. And Reason said, on one of their articles, they said basically that that is a bad thing for smaller tier candidates. And it helps the incumbent candidates, it helps the ones that are well funded. It helps the ones that have all the money, right? Like if you are, if you already have a house seat, that's the status quo. The people in the establishment are going to try to protect the, uh, the status quo. If you are going to primary a Republican congressperson or a Republican senator, you're going to have a harder time raising money than that Republican senator would. So you're going to have a lot less money than that senator, that congressperson, because the status quo is there. They don't want to give up that seat. They don't want to give up that spot. They don't want to take a risk. (coughs) So, all of a sudden, just because you have more money, it makes it easier for you to get into that position. And the reason why I say that is this. If you have all the money in the world that a senator or a congressperson would have, and you have that House seat, you have that Senate seat, and you have that money coming in, you can buy these, you know, $50,000 TV ads. You can buy those radio slots. You have a lot more money to put together a campaign that is not based upon grassroots. (coughs) Because it's not a grassroots campaign. It's a money campaign. It's a co- campaign that says, I have enough money to buy all the ads that I need. I could put signs everywhere. I could buy billboards. I could basically blanket a town with my name and get people to vote for me because they see my name. They see that. So you, you, you're in the primary going against somebody that's going to challenge your seat because you haven't been doing what the people say. And then the person that's primarying you, this is the problem with them. They're not raising the money. They don't have a lot of capital. They don't have a lot of cash. They're trying to run a grassroots campaign, door knocking. But how do you, how do you door knock in a Senate campaign? You can't go all over the state 
door knocking. In a Congress in a congressional campaign, yeah, you can do a little bit more of that. You can get your foot soldiers out there and start doing the door knocking. But one of the main things that you do is you find cheap ways to advertise, but cheap ways to get your name out there. And one of the cheapest ways to do that is through Facebook. You could buy a $5,000 TV slot that's going to get you, you know, however many impressions it is. I'm not sure exactly the number. Or to get that same number of that same number of impressions though on Facebook or on Twitter. It's like it's like a like one percent of the cost that it would to get yourself onto a radio. It's insane how cheap it is on Facebook and on Twitter to get that many impressions. A ten thousand dollars goes far on Facebook and on Twitter to get people to see your name targeted in your area. So you could target it by zip code, you could target it by city, you could target it by state, and it goes very far. That kind of money goes far. So when Twitter says that they're not going to allow political ads on their website anymore, (coughs) excuse me, I think, sorry, that cold that I had last week has now turned into a slight cough. So... I don't have the stuffiness, I don't have the drain, or I don't have all that stuff going on. I don't have the fever that I had. But now I'm starting to get a cough, so so forgive me. Forgive me on that, that I just coughed into the microphone. But anyway, so when Twitter goes off and uh, says that they're not going to accept campaign, like political ads anymore, I think that just, I mean, it's their prerogative. I'm not saying that. They shouldn't do that. It's his prerogative. It's the it's that company. That's that's their platform. They can do what they want to. It just to me, it just takes away a very good thing for a grassroots campaign that needs to figure out ways to get their message out there to more people. Now they that political campaign can still get followers. They can still get people to get onto Twitter. Like, they're just going to have to figure out different ways, like not being able to buy ads. Just like if you couldn't buy ads on Facebook. You could present things and then get people to share them. So if you have a base of 10,000 people that are following you on Facebook or on Twitter, you can get them to retweet your posts, things like that. Like, those are things that you'd be able to do, but you you won't be able to get out there and um, just buy the ads. So that powerful tool that these guys have is now gone, which, eh. Like I said, I don't ever believe in the government. I'm not saying the government should tell the Twitter to get back on board with that. That's not the government's spot to tell people what to do with their businesses. But I just think that it might be a bad thing for Twitter. And it might actually hurt their bottom line down the road. Especially if Facebook is still allowing people to do Twitter ads. Or excuse me, do Facebook ads for their political campaigns. If there's other stuff that's in politics and you want to put out put out something on Facebook, on Instagram, which is another Facebook tool, you can do that, then it might hurt the bottom line of Twitter's, you know, it might affect their stocks, especially in 2020, when you're going to have millions upon millions upon millions of dollars being spent on these ads. I guarantee it, there will be tons of money being spent on those ads. 
But that's their prerogative, like I said. So, there is one last article that I wanted to talk about. And uh, I actually wanted to spend a lot... You know, I'll go and spend some time on it as well if I need to. And it's about Elizabeth Warren's Medicare for All spending. Like, she came out with a plan at the end of last week about her Medicare for All plan. And I think she's... I think she's just trying to put it out there so that it gets all the press off of her, that they can't bring it up in the next debate, and that's good. It's really good that she did that for her campaign, but it actually lets you see exactly where she's at. It lets you see, it lets us libertarians see, holy crap, this is going to cost a lot of money. It lets the Republicans see that as well, and it lets her competitors see that, you know, but you have to have that. You have to have that plan, especially if you're Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth, I have a plan for that Warren. You know, you have to have that thing. So let me go in and hop into this article really fast. Okay, hopping into the Medicare for All plan by Elizabeth Warren. Over the weekend, she released some uh, numbers and all that. She released how she's going to pay for it. And then there was a couple articles that came out. So that's what I'm going to be talking about right now, is how she's going to pay for her Medicare for All plan. The Medicare for All that she's talking about is this, guys. Nobody has any premiums, nobody has any uh, co-pays, nothing. Like, when you go to the doctor, you it's free. Like, in, in that scenario, like, you're not paying anything to your doctor, it's just all, the doctor's office essentially is just billing it to Medicare, and then they're paying the doctor back. That's essentially what she's saying. So no premiums, no insurance, no co-pays, no, you know, insurance premiums or anything like that, it's just... You go to the doctor, it's free. You go to the hospital, it's free. You get cancer, it's free. There's nothing that you pay out of pocket whatsoever at all. Except for, obviously, if there is a payment, obviously it has to be paid from somebody because it's not like doctors are just going to work on charity. Nurses aren't going to work on charity. Radiologists aren't doing that stuff on charity. And manufacturers of MRIs are not, it's not a charity, so, you know, people are going to be buying MRIs and they have to pay for it somehow and that revenue has to come from somewhere. So it's not free. When the government says something's free, just so you know, and you guys know this already, you you guys know enough about economics already to know that there's no such thing as a free lunch. That's like the second thing that you learn in economics classes. There's no such thing as a free lunch. The money has to come from somewhere. So where does it come from? And that's the that's the big question in everyone's mind. When the when one one study that was done by the Urban Institute said that it would cost thirty four trillion dollars in new federal spending, so that's thirty four trillion dollars in new federal spending to have Medicare for all. Elizabeth Warren says no, 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 no. Mine's going to cost twenty point five trillion in new federal spending over ten years. So twenty four twenty point five trillion. So somehow. And all these are estimates, so her estimate is way lower than this Urban Institute's estimate. She has a lot of skin in the game, you know, like, it's 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 important for her to have a lower price tag and to show a lower price tag, right? So she's going to say $20.5 but that's her estimate. So that's probably, like, her lowest estimate. Whereas when the Urban Institute says it, like, their thing is... They're just trying to uh, put together an estimate. Like They're not going to be biased in their views, I can't imagine. So anyway, $20.5 trillion, that's what she says. <clears throat> and this is how it's going to be raised. Ready? So it says, Warrens won't, won't raise, raise taxes on the middle class. 
but other, you know, other, everyone's saying, yes, it will have to raise tax on the middle class, but she says, no, it's not going to. Warren said that repeatedly the overall cost would decrease from the, for the middle class under Medicare for all. Overall cost. And when she says overall cost, that means that what a middle class person pays today for their insurance through their job or through whatever exchange they're on or whatever, right? However you pay for your insurance today, plus the costs of when you go to the doctor and your normal medical bills throughout the year, the tax that you'll have will be less than the total that you already currently pay. So your status quo now, she says that you'll be paying less somehow. Somehow. So that's that's what we get into, right? Warren said that under the current system, individuals are, are expected to spend about $11 trillion on premiums, deductibles, co-pays, and out-of-pocket expenses, and that she'd reduce that amount to practically zero. So your out-of-pocket expenses today, overall, that's what people pay, $11 trillion in premiums, and she says that she'll reduce that amount to practically zero. So out-of-pocket expenses, now that does not get into the taxes that you'll have, I guess. So let's see what, what it says further. She said that taxes don't need to be directly raised on the middle class in order to make up the difference to pay for the additional $20.5 trillion in federal spending she's proposing. To pay for the plan, Warren said that she would redirect $6 trillion that state and local governments currently spend on health care to help fund it. So I guess states and local governments currently pay $6 trillion for health care across the entire United States. Between your city, your county, and your state, they all have some kind of funding going towards it. She wants those states to now just send that money up to the federal government and the federal government would decide how that's spent so that six trillion dollars will now go to the federal government and they'll they'll go ahead and redistribute redistribute it out i would imagine that's how she's trying that's what she's trying to do or instead of that six trillion i I don't know how it would actually work but anyway so she wants that money to go to the state go from the states to the federal government i imagine so those states where you send that money up there but states are getting their money through what they're getting their money through taxes, right? So that $6 trillion is now being sent to the government who's now going to redistribute it. So now you have another person's hands. So that money's going from me to the state, the state to the federal government, the federal government to down to the doctors and whoever's paying. So now you don't, now you don't have just one middleman. You have two middlemen between my money and how it gets in the doctor's hands. So that's more bureaucracy going on at the federal level to handle that. How does that work out? I don't know. I don't know. I just know that one more bureaucratic level does not sound like a good idea to me either. So moving on. So $6 trillion is going to come from the local governments. Warren aims to raise about $8.8 trillion through a employer Medicare contribution that would essentially direct or redirect the federal government or to the federal government what employers are currently paying to insurance companies for their workers' health care. So I guess $8.8 trillion is what all companies, all businesses, currently pay for my health care and for your health care and so forth. $8.8 trillion is the total. So at that point, she's going to tax your business, your company, whoever you work for, on that, and that's going to be sent to the government now too. So it's what they already pay. That's what she. That's the way she's trying to affirm it. They already pay that. So, 
8.8 trillion. That's going to go. So that's, um, instead of going to you or going to your benefits or whatever, that's now going to go to the government. So now the government just claimed that money on your behalf, essentially. 8.8 trillion. Just another bureaucracy taking, there's a new middleman in between. It's not my company going to the doctor or my company going to the insurance company to go to the doctor. It's my, my company sending that money to the government who's then going to redistribute it to the doctor in some way. An inefficient government, by the way. Governments don't run as efficiently as private enterprises, especially when there's like a profit mode incentive as well. But moving on. So that $8.8 trillion is going there. She said $1.4 trillion will be raised through existing taxes on the enormous amounts of money that will now be returned to individuals. Pockets from moving to a Medicare for All system. $1.4 trillion would be raised through existing taxes on the enormous amount of money that will now be returned to individuals' pockets moving to a Medicare for All system with virtually no individual spending on health care. So, I don't know where that money is coming from. That doesn't even make sense to me. She, I'm going to read it one more time. Maybe you have some sense out of this, but I'm going to read it one more time just to make sure I understand it as well. She said $1.4 million would be raised through existing taxes on the enormous amounts of money that will now be returned to individuals' pockets from moving to a Medicare for all system. So essentially, she's saying a lot of money will be raised from us going to Medicare for all system, and it's going to be returned to my pockets, to my my pockets, but she's going to tax that? That's the way that I'm reading that, so forgive me if I'm misinterpreting that, but... So there will be $1.4 trillion in new taxes added. So that's like $1.4 or $140 billion a year in additional taxes, I guess. Warren said that she'd raise about $2.3 trillion by boosting IRS enforcement of tax laws and strengthening tax reporting and withholding requirements. So she says she would raise $2.3 trillion by boosting IRS enforcement of tax laws. But the question is this. How much... That's assuming that... Like when you say you're going to enforce something, there's a cost associated with enforcing something, right? You're going to have to hire more IRS... Like people working for the IRS. You're going to have to hire more auditors. You're going to have to hire people to enforce that. So is that... How much does it cost the government to get $1 in revenue? How much does it cost them to go confiscate $1 in revenue? $2.3 trillion. She's going to figure out a way to get the government to collect $2.3 trillion more trillion over 10 years, so $230 billion a year somehow by enforcing the laws better. That sounds like a good way to audit everybody. Yeah, it just... That just sounds like a good way to turn us into a totalitarian totalitarian state even more than we already are. We're not a totalitarian state. A lot of people try to say that we are, but we just, we have a move towards that. And that's moving us closer to that type of direction, you know? Nobody wants to be audited by the IRS. And she's talking about raising more money. So anyway, besides that, moving on. The Massachusetts Center is also floating new taxes aimed at at the financial sector. A tax on financial trades, which she says would raise about $800 billion over 10 years, and a fee on large banks that she says could raise about $100 billion over 10 years. 
So add fees and taxes and stuff like that to different financial trades and so forth. Amazing because, and this is the assumption though, guys. This is the assumption that all Democrats are making, okay? When you tax money out of the economy, it's going to be spent better by the government than it will be by the individuals or corporations that are being taxed. That's it. It's going to go to better, that resource, a limited resource, which is the stuff that we have, those are limited resources, that those resources are better in the government's hands than they are in the people's hands. So when she says fees on financial trades, fees on these transactions and so forth, don't you like the idea right now that, in like E-Trade, a lot of these companies are doing zero, like no cost to you trades on their platforms. There's no commission, commission-free trading. That will not be happening if that was the case because it's going to cost them for every trade that they do at that point that they have to pay to the federal government a fee on those things, on these trades. But if you are investing your money in one of these companies, and I know like a lot of younger people in the millennial generation, and you know my nephew, for example, uses that Robinhood app, zero dollars it costs him to make these trades. He was showing them this like three years ago, and I was like, wow, that's great. And now everyone's moving to that platform as well. E-Trade just moved to that platform, and I think um, not Edward Jones, but one of these other ones moved to that platform as well. I just read an article about that. But that's because they're trying to give people more for less, right? They're trying to figure out better ways to service their customers. And now the federal government gets involved in that because they want to raise more money. That's better left in the private hands, guys. It is. Warren said she'd make tax changes for corporations that would raise about $2.9 trillion over a decade. These include requiring businesses to write off the cost of their investments over a longer period of time, a country-by-country maximum or minimum tax of 35% on U.S. corporations' foreign earnings and taxing foreign firms based upon their sales in the United States. Wow. That's amazing. I mean, it's just, like I said, she's assuming that that $2.9 trillion over a decade is going to be spent better by the government than it is by the private individual businesses and corporations. But corporations are not taxed. Just, Just so you guys know, and you guys probably know this already, corporations are not taxed. Every dollar that they pay in taxes raises the cost of your product from them or service from them just a little bit higher so when you tax the corporation yeah that sounds oh yeah these corporations they need to pay more in taxes these evil corporations are so greedy why don't they just pay more into the system but when a corporation is taxed when a corporation is taxed it just rate all it does is raise the price of your hamburger a couple pennies it's out of your pocket, not out of the corporation's pocket, okay? That's an expense on their balance sheet. And that's what it is, an expense on their balance sheet. So if they have an expense on their balance sheet, and they have revenue on one side, they have to make up for that expense somehow, and it's by get, raising the prices the most that they possibly can 
in order to make up the difference. That's all it is. That's all it is. Warren said she would expand, or she'd raise $3 trillion over 10 years by expanding her wealth tax proposal, as well as requiring the top 1% of households to pay taxes on their investments gains annually instead of when the investments are sold at the ordinary income rates. Can you imagine that? Now you have to pay on anything that... So she wants the wealth tax on top of that, right? So anyone that's like making... that Not makes, but has $50 billion net worth or $50 million net worth or more, she's going to take 1% of that, so you have to sell off 1% of your stuff in order to pay that. Because it's not... Like I said in the past episode, these people do not have $50 million just sitting there in cash that they could pay the government. They have, they have it in businesses. They have it in real estate. They have it in stuff. So every year when you have to pay your taxes, you're going to be spending, you're going to have to sell off 1% of your stuff in order to pay for your taxes. And on top of that, the cost of compliance, now you have to hire an auditor to audit all all the value of all your stuff so you don't get caught by the government trying to underestimate your prices of your stuff. And when you have an auditor come in, you have to have a second auditor come in to make sure that the first auditor didn't underestimate stuff as well. The value of your painting, the value of your real estate, the value of this, the value of that. That doesn't even make sense, but that's what she wants to do. Plus, if you have investments, 1%, so if you're in the top 1% of households, I don't know what that, I don't know exactly what the top 1% of households is. Does that mean net worth? But you have to pay 1% on your investment gains annually. So that means if you gained... $10 $10 million, you have to pay 1% of that to the government. Not when you sell it, but now. But then when you sell it, you're still going to be taxed. I think, what is it, 15% is the capital gains tax right now? It might be more than that. But yeah, but this is what I get at, man. This is what I get at. Her assumption is this. Her assumption is that that money is better spent by the federal government than it is by the individuals that are out there. That government, that money is spent better by the government than left in the economy as a whole. And you and I both know that, that is not right. That is not true. The government wastes money. The government spends money on bureaucracy. The government is inefficient. Governments do not run efficiently. They don't have a incentive to run in an efficient way. They have an incentive to. This is what they have incentive to do. Take bribes, get reelected, and give out favors to the politically well-connected. That's the incentives, because every person that works for the government is an individual, and every person that works for the government, they, just like you and me, we respond to incentives, so do they. We are greedy, so are they. We are open and susceptible to corruption, so are they. But there's and there's no way to get those people to follow the rules every single time. And if you don't follow the rules, it's very hard for you to get fired when you live when you work in the public sector. <clears throat> so that's the that's the road that we'd be going down though. That money's better left in the private hands. I'm telling you. Another thing that I was looking at, I found another article, and it was just talking about the way that they were going to um, 
fund this thing as well. And they were talking about this. It was saying that in her plan, another way that she's going to find savings from that $34 trillion. So she's saying it's going to cost $20.5 trillion over 10 years to pay for her plan. $34 trillion is what most other outlets have said that it would cost. Some of them said as low as 30. So where is she going to make up the difference? And that's what they were saying. How is she going to make up the difference from $20 trillion to $30 trillion? Because she's going with a very low estimate, guys. A very low estimate. And you guys know this. When the government decides to build a bridge, and they say it's going to cost $100 million, usually it costs two or three hundred million dollars like if they say they're going to build a road it usually comes in over budget and it takes longer than they say it's going to take and on top of that if they say it's going to be a hundred million dollars and they buy bonds in order to pay for that then those bonds have interest on them over the course of 30 years or however long that bond is so that's another expense to the to it as well so she says $20 trillion. I guarantee you that is a drastic overestimate on the or underestimate of what this is really going to cost. A drastic underestimate. So she says she's going to, she will save money by doing what? Well, how else would you save money by, by cutting the amount that's paid to the doctors? Cutting the amount that's paid to the hospitals? Cutting the amount that's paid out? to specialists. She specifically says specialists also. That specialists, so so you have brain cancer. And there's a specialist that you go to for that, less payment to that brain cancer specialist. So what do you get for any, when you, when brain cancer specialists are getting less money? You have less brain brain cancer specialists. That's what you do. Like if you have the ability to become a Specialist of the like, if you have the ability to become a specialist as a doctor, the reason why you got into that is because it might be a little bit more lucrative for you to get into that specialization, right? That's what people do. Like they make they, people are motivated by incentives, and the incentive is money when you're going to become a doctor, right? So she specifically said one of them. She said was orthopedic surgeons. She says that they're drastically overpaid, and that she would like to rein that in. So you're going to have less orthopedic surgeons, right? But imagine this, guys. Because 30 years ago, if you were an orthopedic surgeon, you probably had less people to work on than you do today. And the reason why is because of the baby boomer generation. So lots of people have decided to become orthopedic orthopedic surgeons because how many knee replaces have to be done on a 75-year-old lady, right? How many people are falling and breaking their hip and they have to have a hip replacement surgery? How many athletes are tearing ACLs? They have to get in there and fix that. Like, that's what these people do, right? They're, they're getting in there, they're doing surgeries on people that have a problem. Tell that to the person that has to walk around in pain all day long, that you're going to have less orthopedic surgeons. That's what we say when we say that when you turn it over to the government, the government's making decisions not based upon need, but based upon political, political things, right? You're going to have less people in these specialties. So you're going to have less specialists. You're going to have less you're going to have less care. You're going to have you're going to have worse care under this plan. But that's 
the decision that politicians make rather than letting you make your own decision. Yeah, you're you're sitting there, you have you just broke your hip. You need to go to an orthopedic surgeon. You're on a waiting list at that point because there's less orthopedic surgeons. But now if you say, "Hey, you know what? I'm going to go to an orthopedic surgeon." Well, since there's a higher demand for orthopedic surgeons, there's more people becoming orthopedic surgeons, so now they're jumping into that profession, so there's more of them out there to fix your hip. That's just the way it will be. But yeah, so I don't want to spend too much more time on that. I just think, in my mind, I'm just thinking to myself when I'm reading all these articles about what Elizabeth Warren is doing, yeah, if you're going to pay doctors, so if you're going to pay doctors, hospitals, radiologists, everybody in that line, because she even says radiologists as well, that they're getting paid too much, that they're going to cut spending to radiologists. So in that situation there, you're going to have less radiologists. You're going to have less people doing MRIs, all these different things that these these uh, hospitals do to help people out. You're going to have less of that happening. Let me give you guys a personal example. I'm going to give you guys a I'm going to I'm going to let you guys know a personal thing about me, okay? When I was younger, or this is like I think yeah, it was probably like 7 years, 8 years ago. 8 years ago, I had three strokes over the course of six months, okay? Three of them. And the first time it happened, I went into the doctor's, or I went into the hospital, and one of the um, people on staff had just heard about something, that something, and they ordered for, they, they did the normal CT scan, they did a few other things, and it wasn't showing the problem that I had. But someone brought it up, they said, hey, we should have them do an MRI with contrast an MRI with contrast so they set me up to do that same day they found what was wrong an artery in the back of my neck that was dissected and they were trying to they, they, they wouldn't have figured that out unless they had access to the MRI machine with contrast if you have less of that I mean in my situation there that saved my life guys it saved my life and how many people had their lives saved because you have easy access to machines like that? If you go to England, if you go to Canada, if you go to a lot of these countries, you're on a waiting list for six months. I wouldn't have had six months to know what was going on. So I, I take that's personal to me. That's personal to me. So that's what I'm talking about. You have less radiologists getting paid. They're paying 60% less to radiologists now than they were before. Less radiologists. <coughs> less investment in MRI machines. Less investment in different treatments. Because some politician wants to get involved in your stuff. That pisses me off. I take that personal. Because it saved my life. But anyway, that's all I got for you. Hopefully you enjoyed my, uh, my personal note. I usually don't get too personal on this show. But uh, I appreciate you continuing to listen to the show. Go ahead if you can. Subscribe to the show. Give me a five-star rating and review if you can as well. Come back tomorrow, though, and you'll have clear vision for 2020.